Becky and I'm Sam and we're from the band Tongue um, and this is our Dead Club podcast. Tongue is a British band and we've been making music together for about 15 years and it's me and Sam and also Ashley, Martin, Mike and Phil. Um, Dead Club is a project that we started back in 2018 where we wanted to explore the way that our culture and other cultures um, deal with death and talk about death. And as part of the research, we approached loads of people that we were interested in talking to, to see if they would come and meet us. Um, And because we got so many amazing interviews, we decided to make a podcast from it. Also probably important to say that we started working on this project long before coronavirus was a word that people even kind of knew so we are recording some of this on zoom now it's important to note that i think um it feels like these conversations are even more important i suppose now this episode is an interview with darren brown Uh, darren is a british mentalist illusionist and author Uh, he doesn't have magical powers or psychic ability but became a household name through a tv show called mind control um, which is all about the art of psychological manipulation he also wrote a fantastic book called happy which has a, a big section on death and dying in it and that's why we wanted to speak to him for this project my conversation with Darren influenced the first track on the album which is called Eating the Dead. Uh, There's a chapter in his book with that title and it it triggered all sorts of imagery for me that that set that song in motion. Darren Brown, um, it's really lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for um, being being happy to speak to us for this project. Um, Oh, it's a pleasure. I I know that a lot of people will know you from your TV and theatre shows. Um, You know, that that was really how I knew you ever since I saw you turning, um, you convinced Simon Pegg that he wanted a, a red BMX for Christmas, yeah. I think it was, I and uh, I, was, I was sort of hooked really on, on what you do. Um, you describe yourself in your own words as a kind of magician. Yeah, yeah, well I've sort of got one foot in magic and one foot in hypnosis, which is how I started. I think, technically I'm a mentalist, yes, so it's okay. kind of that psychological end of magic. Yeah, yeah which is a, w- a wonderful word. Um, mm. <laughs> so... The reason I wanted to speak to you is because of your book, Happy, which um, yeah. it came out in 2016. And it's a fantastic book. You know, I think a lot of your, a lot of your work, you know, your TV shows, there, there's a kind of underlying, I don't know if moral thread is the right word, but there's a, there's a kind of, it's like you're trying to persuade us to embrace truth in the world yeah. and, and mm. to sort of live our lives a little bit more from that perspective. And I, mm. I, I think that's very valuable. And um, this, this book really goes one step further and it's it's I'm not sure you'd agree but it's almost like a little sort of handbook for living in some ways yeah well I'm I thank you that's nice of you to say all of that I'm 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 interested in in the considered life I suppose and that's yeah. I, I suppose that's really what it's about I think the the p- part of the problem with the topic of of happiness and the book is called happy is that it's 
kind of it is a very slippery subject and uh, you know the, I think the the rainbow is a good image for happiness because you know as you get closer to it it just kind of recedes and yeah. dissipates and happiness is, is the same thing so really it wasn't wasn't so much about happiness per se but kind of seeing beyond that putting our modern ideas of happiness into some sort of historical context because when we see when we realize these things change uh, as our cultural presumptions change we kind of realize it isn't just this straightforward birthright that we we're sort of entitled to because yeah. that's part of the problem because then when we don't have it we think we've failed with something that should be obvious and it, and it isn't and I think it's a, a, a byproduct of things like meaning um, I think there are techniques and philosophies and particularly stoicism that's very good for avoiding disturbance and, un and unnecessary anxiety which is yeah. a lot of what the book's about um, but also as part of the project of what it is to to live well, I think how you how you relate to the idea of death is is a big chunk of that, which is why a big chunk of the book is about that too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you mentioned stoicism there, and I, I'd like to come back to that a little bit mm. later. Um, but as you say, quite a big a big part of the book is about death, which something I found really refreshing. Um, I, you know, my experience is that. On one one hand, death is absolutely everywhere in our culture. You know, I um, I watched a couple of, uh, well, there were big big blockbuster films at the moment recently, and you know, by the end of the film, um, probably hundreds of uh, bad guys had been fairly <laughs> cheerily dispatched. You know, some with mm. like a quite a few with a little witty quip. It, it, you know, it's full of death, um, and yet mm. when it comes to honest, open conversations with the people in our lives who we perhaps care about the most, it, um, certainly in my life, that there's very little of that discussion and when it when yeah. the, when it does start I'm I feel a bit adrift I'm not a little afraid of what to say how to say it yeah. um can, can I just open up with the question um that I'm asking you know of what we're asking should I say everybody that we're speaking to what, what do you think your culture when I say your culture you could interpret that however you however you interpret that what, what does your culture do well in relation to death and what what could it do better Oh God! What do we do well in relation to death? I, I, uh, well, we're very good at keeping it at bay, and I suppose mm. that's that's something that has um, uh, been a big part of where the Enlightenment project has sort of hit medicine. It's it's odd to think that only a few hundred years ago we were still caught up in the ancient Greeks' model of of health. You know, the 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 the, the four different you know, these, these sort of ethereal humours and uh, yeah. liquids that were supposed to be kind of moving around us and, and, and governing our health. It's only quite a recent thing for medicine to have kind of moved forward into actually the realm of, of proper science. And as part of that project, we uh, d death moved on from something that was very much kind of part of life uh, you know, the deathbed was something very much that was in the home and it was all something that we kind of lived with to suddenly um, medicine's job was to keep death at bay. Mm. So on the, on the one hand, we got very good at doing that. But the, the problem with it is that in doing that and continuing that enlightenment project of also dispensing with any number of uh, superstitions, particularly morbid superstitions, we've also lost a, any sort of meaning or narrative around death. Yeah. And we've also lost uh, the sort of any any sense of it being a kind of companion. Um, mm. It's now just a terrifying and sort of 
scary and absurd stranger that no one wants to talk about or accommodate in any way. Um, we don't have any sense of meaning around it, which is uh, what happens if you dispense with myth and you dispense with those kind of things, which obviously, you know, there's a lot of sense in dispensing with superstition and so on. But there is just a little bit of a baby that gets thrown out with the bathwater and that, and, and that is the, the sort of sense of meaning, a kind of psychological resonance around, uh, or those kind of resonant ideas have, have gone. Um, so what we're left with um, is death is just kept at bay, which means the priority becomes around extending life rather than preserving any quality of life. Yeah. Um, so that's both the strength and the weakness. We've got very good at extending the life of people that have terminally ill, but not necessarily uh, very good at just remaining in touch with what quality of life should be around us around that time. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, I think that's such an important issue. I've um, been reading um, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, and also, mm. I don't know if you've read the Catherine Mannix book, uh-huh. ha- um, Alls, oh, I've forgotten the title of the Catherine Mannix book, actually, but it's it's really, so it's a similar kind of story. I know story the one you mean, yeah. 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 It's, and it's really, yeah. um, I, well, I, I think there is a sort of an opening up to this now. I think uh, there's a great book as well, Brandy Schilling, uh, Death's Summer Coat, it's called, which is very much about oh, yeah. about the same uh, the same thing. There's there's a there's definitely a sort of dialogue that's I think is you know opening up and uh, questions about euthanasia and so on are, are, mm. are rather you know more kind of in the air now than than they were before. So I think I I think it's and it's you know it's kind of a matter of time isn't it if you uh, it's like the the shadow side of, of anything if you bury if you bury something for long enough like what are these more helpful narratives and approaches to death if you bury that for long enough it'll eventually make itself known so maybe you know a, a, a constructive way of that is coming out through through dialogue a, a less constructive way would be for example you know psychic mediums and so on you know how massively popular they are because they're offering some kind of you know, tawdry semblance of, of, of meaning uh, in an area where we've kind of lost any sense of meaning. The, the only narrative that really has persisted is that of the brave battle that someone's fighting. Yeah. You know, that's, 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 that's the narrative that we have. That's our kind of story that we um, jump onto. But it's only really helpful. It's not helpful for the person that's dying. It's helpful for everybody else um, trying to make, you know, to make them feel better, which, you know, is... This is important. It's not to belittle that, but it, it just adds failure to a long list of problems that you know the dying person already has. A feeling yeah. that now they're going to let everybody down. They're going to they're going to fail. Um, it's just uh, you know it's not it's not helpful. Yeah, that I mean that's certainly the impression. So the the book, the Catherine Mannix book, is um, called With the End in Mind. I just remembered, and um, okay, I really um, you know she, she tells a lot of stories. She's a palliative care nurse who's mm. worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, people at the end of their lives over the years and I really got the sense that that's true that the more knowledge and it's good to talk about it um but I I think it is difficult for some people and I I actually had a bit of a crisis of confidence about the entire project not so long ago because I I made an attempt to open up a conversation with someone in my in my life who um I won't go into the details but it it really shook me a little bit and I thought oh perhaps um perhaps I'm doing something that Perhaps it's a bit arrogant to sort of think that people should talk about these things um, when, yeah. when it's this frightening thing to do. But perhaps what's important is that people have the opportunity to talk about them. 
Yeah, well, I, I think there's, there's a, you know, I, I do feel very strongly that we, we live our life through narrative. We, we have this infinite data source that's coming at us, and the only way of navigating through that is to reduce it to some kind of story. And yeah. the nature yeah. of stories is that they have graceful arcs. You know, there's a kind of a simplicity to them. Um, mm. And it's part of the, you know, the way storytelling works, is that your image of storytelling is around a campfire or around a fireplace yeah. or maybe, um, you know, with a bedside lamp on. There's always a sense of a, of a, a clearing of light and then just sort of darkness all yeah. around you. That's the nature of telling a story, that you're creating a little clearing and there's all this other stuff that's being excluded that doesn't, com- that doesn't comfortably fit in. That's the nature of storytelling and that's the nature of how we interact with this infinite data source. There is an infinite number of things that we could think about, yeah. but we don't. We edit and, and delete. It's one of the reasons I you know, find magic fascinating, because a magician is doing the same thing, making you edit and delete a set of events to form a narrative. Um, and this is you know, important, and it's just part of how we live and how we relate to the idea that these things are stories is you know, important. Do we... Do we realize they're just stories and we don't mistake them for the truth and so on and is our story being heard are we written in or out of stories and so on all these things are important um but then what happens at the end of life uh in an ideal world would be like what happens at the end of a book or a, or a movie that that story is wound up that it has some sort of meaningful conclusion you know the last scene of a of a movie generally makes sense of everything that comes before yeah. uh, but of course that doesn't happen in life so that's that one point where we should be allowed to take authorship more than any other point, you know, to, to forgive things that need forgiving, to close things that need closing, and just, just to, to find a sense of, of um, authorship. And, of course, what happens is the opposite normally. That, that person becomes like a bit part, like a cameo in their own story and that the the main parts are given over to doctors and loved ones and relatives that are making decisions um and gradually this sort of person is uh is sort of sidelined and often this is you know at the end of a long period of enfeeblement where they're just you know my my, my own father at the moment is is not well and that a process has sort of started where you know my my mum's very careful for him not to not to fall or not to mm-hmm. bump into things or not to, you know, <laughs> gradually any sort of uh, risk is removed. And then this, you know, it's a, a slippery slope from that to kind of being sidelined in your own story because your, your, your future is narrowed to the, to the, you know, to the width of the, your bed or your armchair. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that your dad's not well. Um, yeah. I, I think, think he's, 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 he's not he's not on his last legs but it's it's sort of um, you know I think it's it's just it, 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 in a way that these things are becoming uh, becoming more and more relevant mm. yeah I, I, I mean you talk a lot about meaning there and it's almost um, I think this is something I liked about your book and um, and actually it, you, some of the things you say remind me a little bit of um, you know religion for atheists uh, uh, yeah religion for atheists by Alan de Botton mm. you know he's yeah. him in the school of life Th- these things are illuminating something about myself I think you know I'm the kind of person who I, I read the God delusion and uh, against all gods uh, you know AC Grayling mm. I've, I read your book I I'm I'm really passionate about this kind of movement to um, bring rational thought into into our culture and mm. I, I find it. I think it's really, really important. But I also have this 
big part of me um, which is very attracted uh, and um, to the idea that there's some underlying or overarching meaning to, to life. Mm. And I think for, for a long time, I, perhaps before this kind of shift that's happening, I, I was a, felt a bit lost with what to do with it. And mm. I think what's, what's lovely about what, what you're doing and what Alan de Botton is doing is that there's this acknowledgement that there is this part of us that is somehow very rich and full of meaning and um, I th it's really important to connect to that. Um, how, old, how old are you? If you don't mind I'm 43. Right, so I, I think there's a thing that happens, particularly in our 40s, I'm 48, yeah. um, where we kind of, a bit of a shift happens from essentially the first half of life to the second half of life. Mm. And it, it, in, the, in the first half of life, we are... Uh, kind of setting our stall out and we're we're fighting battles and we're we're, we're finding out kind of who we are in the world and it's it's yeah. a, it's uh, it's a series of projects of going I am I am this person um, and we're finding out our, our place in things yeah and it's a bit like we're slaying the dragon it's that story and then but after you've slayed the dragon you then rescue the princess so what happens in the second half of life in, in a kind of uh, healthy psychological journey, um, I think, is that we, we've slayed the dragon and now we, now we need to serve the thing that's bigger than ourselves. Hmm. So we rescue the princess. So the ego starts to step down. And what that means is we look for the things that are bigger than us and we, uh, we sort of lose ourselves a little in those in those things, and which is how you find, how, it's how you find meaning in life. You find the things bigger than you, and then you throw yourself into that thing. Yeah. And I think it's a very important stage. There's something about a kind of ambitious, ego-driven person in their I don't know late sixties, seventies that feels a little bit wrong in a way that it doesn't feel wrong mm. in your twenties and thirties. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it is important that we find that, and that might be kids, or it might be religion, or it might be. Um, creative projects, isn't, I don't think it really matters what it is, but there's a sense that your ego just uh, steps down. So Jung, which is, this is quite a Jungian idea, he talks about it and calls it um, a process of individuation, mm -hmm. which is, on the one hand, it's a, a, about bringing out the sort of richest version of yourself, but not in any kind of narcissistic way. It's actually kind of the opposite. It's, it's being the best version of yourself by stepping down and serving something greater, whatever that is. And I, I think that's probably what you're articulating. And uh, I find it a really um, interesting sort of point of uh, kind of tension um, mm. in my own life. And I think, I think it's, uh, you know, I, and I don't have kids. And I think that that's one thing that naturally tends to sort of help with that kind of, um, you know, journey for, for most people. But it, it is important. He talks about the... Um, like the sun, the sun going up, and then the sun coming down. And as the sun is coming down, you're essentially preparing for death. And that yeah. that's, the, that's the process of the second half of life. And part of the way you do that is that you, uh, you, shift, your, you shift your priorities and your, you know, the, the ego just takes on a slightly different role. I think, these are all, I think these are all important ideas. Yeah, well, funnily enough, I had a child about 20 months ago, and that, that has definitely sort of cracked me open a little bit emotionally and made all these things a bit richer mm. but but also uh, being involved with this project is is forcing me to mm. sort of engage with some of these issues in a in a new mm. way which is quite quite powerful actually um, and yeah. I'd like to so 
it, there's, a, there's a, a part of the book is about death, and a part of that part of the book is called Fearing Death. Mm. And if you don't mind me saying, it gets wonderfully geeky. Um, <laughs> and um, it made me want to sit in the pub with you all weekend, just talking about all these things which I don't fully understand. Uh, <laughs> and there were two things. I mean, firstly, you talk about um, how to even discuss the notion of an afterlife from, from certain points of view doesn't necessarily make sense um, to all to do with the nature of time and how um, uh, kind of after yes. does it after it doesn't necessarily exist once you're no longer a human being that is engaging with the space-time continuing in the way that human <laughs> beings do that there's perhaps no sort of after doesn't really mean anything so I mean I, I, do you want to say something about that because I don't think I really understood it properly okay I don't know if I'll make it any clearer okay. I also don't know if it's I don't even know if it's a particularly useful thought but it um, the, the, the point is is that I think when people talk about the afterlife uh, or talk about that kind of spiritual realm that we you know that we're going to go to yeah. uh, quite aside aside from religious belief just just thinking about that as a thing in itself what they're articulating often is not a you know a place up in the clouds somewhere, but a kind of um, everything stripped away, and the real the real sort of nature of of you know what what things are if you just strip away your human perspective and all those things that get in the way. You're kind of like in touch with whatever this sort of noumenal reality is that yeah. exists. You know, if the, the thing that we can never quite reach in our normal everyday experience. Um, but the trouble with that. Is that it can't? There are certain things that it can't then include, and one of those things is the idea of after, before or after. Before and after are obviously about time; they're time constructs, yeah. and those are things that exist not in that noumenal world that we can never perceive directly, but actually in our perceptions. They they're, they're part of our organizing structure in our heads. They don't really they're not really things that exist if we could all jump up into the fourth dimension yeah. uh, we'd be existing sorry we'd be experiencing time probably all in one big go anyway you know where where we'd see maybe the the a baby in the same moment that we'd see the same baby when it had grown up into into an adult would have like yeah. a, a whole potentially a very different idea of time what, what we have is a series of we see a series of sections and slices moment by moment but that's you know that's that's how we perceive. Um, but the, the very notion of time, like the notion of space, something being here or there, yeah. those are just organising things that we're doing in our head. They wouldn't be part of what's left if we strip our own perceptions out of the way and then get in touch with whatever's, whatever's left. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of all the point, that actually it, the very notion of something being an afterlife in that sense, doesn't really, make, doesn't really make any sense because notions of before and after wouldn't apply to yeah. whatever is whatever is left when you take mere human perceptions and things out of the way. I've no idea if that's any clearer. <laughs> it's so interesting. You know what I think I like about it is that I don't really get it, and I think um, <laughs> I, I think to me there's something exciting about kind of realizing that I don't really get it because I, I think it sometimes one of the challenges we have as human beings is it perhaps we have I think perhaps our, our nervous systems are sort of geared up to to make um come to this come to conclusions about things you know if a tiger's going to jump out of the bush at you 
you know it's mm. better to better to jump in surprise and it's just a hedgehog and you know get out of the way rather if it is a tiger you know you want to be getting out of the way as quickly as possible so we perhaps mm. evolution has you know encouraged us to be come to conclusions quickly but i think we do it all the time about everything and sometimes when issues like this are really important it's not helpful to come to quick conclusions so i think just the fact that that completely confuses me it, it, it <laughs> inspires me to go and think about things a bit more deeply so i i, I can't tell you i, I get it but i like it um <laughs> oh, that's not a bad place to be oh yeah exactly and there's there's another thing in that section which i, I in a similar way um i feel i do get this a little bit more actually um but it's to do with you know this whether we believe in a sort of spiritual kind of part of life in in a, and i mean that in a sort of spiritual way that people would associate with god or an afterlife or whether we think that's a real thing or not a real thing it seems like it's quite important for the kinds of decisions people make about the world and about about their lives um and again this is i i feel this is very connected to my storytelling part of myself but despite the fact that on a at a rational level i i can't really believe in anything that i haven't mm. seen experienced had proof for there's definitely a bit of me that sort of believes that there's something more and i i i love the section on it's the soul and it's it's epiphenomenal qualia uh, which I've been desperately trying to drop into conversations ever since I read it, but I haven't managed it so far. Can you just talk a little bit about epiphenomenal qualia? Right, God, yes. Yeah. So the, this comes from uh, uh, the question of whether or not we are just uh, some sort of, whether we can be accurately described as some sort of machine. Mm. Or whether there's something outside the machine, some sort of soul or some sort of other thing that gets in the mix that makes us um, makes us who we are. And, and the, so the experiment that the, or the thought experiment that's offered is there's this woman, I think she's called Mary normally in this experiment, and she lives in a room. And this is actually this. This was played out in the film Ex Machina or Ex Machina, yeah. um, Alex Garfield movie, which Great is film. tremendous. Um, so you've got, a, you've got someone in a room, let's call her Mary. And uh, she is, she's never seen colour. It's a black and white room and everything in it is black and white. Yeah. Uh, she's never seen colour for real. But she's taught everything about colour. Okay. She is an expert on, on colour. But it's just stuff that she's been taught. How, it, how our eyes and brains uh, interact to create the, uh, the sort of experience of colour. She can tell you everything about colour, she's just never actually experienced it directly. Yeah. And then she steps out into the world and experiences colour for the first time. And the question is, does anything different happen at that point? Does anything qualitatively uh, different happen when she's actually experiencing colour that is above and beyond just... Uh, what she could have learned if she's learned like everything and understood everything is something else happening and the argument goes that if if there's something else that happens and of course it feels like there is something else in yeah. the air when you actually experience it for real um if there's something else then there's something else than just sort of information that we're yeah. more than just a kind of you know amazing computer um it's an interesting one it doesn't it it feels like there must be something else but at the same time it doesn't really quite 
doesn't quite point to the soul. It's 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 sometimes used as an argument for the soul, but equally doesn't doesn't quite feel satisfying either because yeah, whatever there is, whether it's something to do with knowing that you're experiencing blue, which isn't quite the same as understanding everything about blue, whether there's just something about I'm having the qualitative experience, where this word qualia comes from, it's something about the quality yes, of yeah. the thing that's happening. It doesn't, that doesn't necessarily point to a soul either, but it does, it just does point to the limits, is, is, you know, is there, is there something else, there's something in qualitative experience that's, that, you know, moves us on from being yeah. just, just machines. I guess it points to awareness and consciousness, doesn't it? And, uh, like, have you, did, mm. have you seen the David Chalmers TED Talk at all? No, I have not. Oh, I think, I think you quite like it. So it, mm. he's a, um, he's a scientist who studies consciousness and the brain and, and, uh, mm. and he talks about, um, uh, he, he talks about some of the things you just talked about as well, but he, he's, the, the TED talk is all about him kind of saying, you know, we're a little bit stuck at the moment with consciousness because, you know, every, everything else we've been studying in science has an objective quality and then um, consciousness has this kind of subjective quality that we don't quite understand yet. Mm. Um, and it feels to me that once we start making a bit more progress as to understanding what consciousness is, um, that might shed a bit of life on what light, sorry, on, on what existence is and what life is, and um, I find that quite quite exciting, you know, to see where the science goes goes on that. Mm. Um, of course, I you've also what, got Dan Dennett who says it's just an it's just an illusion mm. created by yeah. the brain. Exactly, and then we tend to get caught up in the metaphors of our age. So yeah. the way Freud spoke about the mind was very much you know, the age of the steam engine. So it was all about all about that a sense of um, well, at least the, what we've taken from that is you know, we have ideas of pressure and letting off steam and all of, all of those things. There was a sort of a, uh, there's a, a whole language around uh, the mind which kind of makes sense in terms of sort of pneumatics and engines yeah. and so on. And, but that was then and now we talk about computers and we talk about information and the way our brains are hardwired or, you know, uh, input and output and and we use a very kind of electrical and computer-based sort of uh, language. And I'm sure it'll become something else. And each, each one of those models helps us in some ways yeah. um, and hinders us in other because of the, you know, the limits of the particular, uh, the particular metaphor. So those, those things really get in the way because they, those metaphors become built into our, into our thinking um, and our way of seeing ourselves and our, and, and our consciousness. Yeah, that's yeah. That's I found it fascinating. So there's just two two things I just want to briefly mention before we finish. Um, the first is from your book, and it's um, it's actually I think it's from Brandy Schillis. Mm. Um, it's Death Summer Coat um, that you're drawing on, and it talks about the the Wari of Brazil, um, mm. and that they practice necrophagy. Uh, so yes. they actually consume their dead. I wonder, do, are you able to tell that story? Um. Yeah, well, gosh, that's, that's, that, I think you pretty much said it. Uh, the, the point of it is how different cultures live with death differently. And yeah. Brandy Schillis' book is, is terrific in uh, talking, about, talking about those. And this, this, yes, you're right, it's the Wari tribe, isn't it? Or the Wari people that, um, that eat their dead. And there are other cultures that live, this, you know, I think this is quite a common thing, that people live with their, live with their dead. Okay, um, yeah. It may be a question of their, um, 
waiting until they can afford funeral rites. Um, okay. uh, some cultures they consider the, the dead just to be sick until that, even though they're you know dead and rotting in their houses, but until the um, until the funeral rite happens, they're not even considered dead. So there's a much more companionable relationship. Um, into, and, and part of that is, you know, how you see what happens to the, the, the spirit of the person and, and what the stories are, you know, in that particular yeah. culture around those things. And what all of those things do, as easy as they are to, you know, sort of scoff at or find, you know, funny um, or bizarre, is they, more than anything, I think, provide a kind of psychologically resonant and helpful narrative for those people. And that's, that's something that we don't have yeah, um, and I think we really feel that in exact exactly what you're saying. How you know we can talk about this stuff in the in the abstract, but how difficult it is to then have these conversations when they're most needed. Yeah, you know it's very it's it's very hard to start having those conversations. You know, the, it's, as I said, hopefully it's a way off with my dad, but there are definitely kind of conversations that probably should happen sooner rather than later and it's just sort of how do you even begin to yeah how do you even begin to do that so you need something i either that's in the air culturally that it just feels like that's a, a normal conversation to have or somehow institutionally that it's you know that doctors and people like that are, are um become uh the people that will instigate those com those conversations more and you know maybe we just need a bit of a a bit more of a nudge or it's just a sort of way of thinking and being that just needs to sort of find its find its feet amongst us but some, somehow we need to because these things are always so intensely personal you know it's yeah. it's it's our universe that ends when we die that's that's everything you know every thought we've had everything we remember all these this whole, whole thing of our life just you know yeah. is going to go and that's a huge and intensely personal thing and it's one thing to know that immortality would be utterly boring and make life meaningless if we lived forever so it you know so death is important you know if death without sorry life without death at the end of it is like a circle without a circumference you know, kafka said that the meaning of life is that it ends we need some sort of ending in order to make sense of anything all those things in the abstract make absolute sense but i think it was simone de beauvoir who said something about you know yes but not when not when it's my death it's you know it's never <laughs> yeah. it's never the right time it's never it's never right for the uh for the individual but obviously that's not the case for everybody and there are people that choose to die and it's that's a, a slightly different thing but there is yeah. it's it's a very hard impossible thing often to be bringing up and you feel like you're flapping around on your own you feel it's, it's a you feel you lack the tools and the education and the opportunities for those conversations to happen and that's absolutely yeah that is a cultural thing it's a, it's a it's a deficit that we have because we've so proudly dispensed with um you know, morbid superstition, we, we know, yeah. which is a good thing, but also it just leaves us a bit stuck. Yeah, we're looking for something new, and hopefully, hopefully, there's a process that you know. I mean, I find I'm finding these conversations so you know some of what you just said it's so remarkable that once we when we die, our, our whole this whole world we've that only we inhabit really, you know, this world within us is gone. Mm. And I know after having this conversation that when I see my daughter tomorrow morning, I'm going to kiss her and hold her with a little bit, you know, just a little bit of extra awareness about how mind-blowingly 
incredible all of this is you know so I, I'm personally loving this journey and I hope other mm. people will too well, the, um, the, the, the Stoics uh, Seneca said uh, specifically that when we when we kiss our daughter goodnight we should uh, we should remember that she may not be there in the morning uh, absolutely yeah. and not not out of any horrible morbid you know way but just just to realize that to value the things that you you have a lot of stoicism is about not clamoring after more but you know not not taking what you have for granted yeah. Um, I tell you something else which occurs to me a lot on on the that sort of subject of things ending. I think there's a uh, a thought that will probably occur to us probably shortly before we die, uh, where we'll look back over the vast array of people um, mm. and realize that those were those were the people. Those were the people that populated our life. So, uh, so our parents and our loved ones that sort of you know meant so much that were kind of at the centre of that. Like the cast, if you think of it as a cast of actors, you know the sort of the the other principal roles in our kind of drama and all the sort of tensions and disappointments and 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 dramas that came with those. But not only those, all the people we dislike. This particularly, I think, is is an effective thought with people that we dislike. People that drove us mad and people that every time they rang we just let the phone ring out and people that we just avoided and people that just a million tiny arrows every day. This vast array of people, many of whom caused us a lot of displeasure. We're going to realise at some point, oh, that, those are the people that populated my life, that made me who I am. That, 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 that was it. That was, those were the people. Yeah. And I don't know if this makes any sense. It's a slightly difficult thought to communicate, but... I think it, it 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 brings it brings people to a to a level of sort of there's a a fondness uh, yeah. that's different, and it also I think makes a difference with uh, the people that we didn't know directly but knew of, like um, you know celebrities or actors that we were maybe a little obsessed by, or uh, porn stars that we were obsessed by, <laughs> or uh, the celebrities that we met and then made fools of ourselves and just, you know, replaying the awful memories of that conversation again and again. Just all these, you know, people that have loomed too large, it brings them down to a certain sort of uh, level of just realising, oh, they were they were the people that populated my life. They were the figures that affected me or meant this to me. And, and I, I, I find that, because there, there are a few things we're told that may occur to us later on that we should think of now, like, you know, live each day like it's your last and so on. And I don't think those thoughts are always very helpful because when you're alive and well, you're living in a world that has a future and, and your priorities are going to be different now than, than when, you're, when your life comes to an end. But I think this, this thought, for me at least, that all these people, many of whom are just driving you mad now, will be that cast, they will be the cast of people sort of taking their bow at the end. And particularly in those areas where it's people that drive us mad, people we work with that we just oh, just think are you know hopeless, and people that irritate us, and all that stuff that happens. I think it's uh, I think it's a nice. It's a lovely thought. Yeah, I can't I can't quite put my finger on why, but uh, but I feel uh, even just sitting here now, I feel like sort of uh, feel more compassionate towards everybody uh, mm. in a, in quite a nice way. I think um, those kind of thoughts are helpful, you know. So mm. thank thank you very much for that. Um, Darren, I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, I'm really grateful. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I, well, I could talk all night, but um, but 
uh, that's a, that's the perfect place to stop the conversation, I think. And uh, yeah, right. thank you Lovely. very much. Hi, uh, my name is Martin Smith. I play all the dusty roads and soft piano parts in tongue. I play percussion on the live show, but actually there has been very little percussion on this new album. As the sound has been very stripped back with a simpler palette of instrumentation. Imagine I'll pick up the um, clarinet parts, which feature throughout um, when this album is eventually presented on stage. Um, it's been amazing to record this one. Uh, one particular song that I wanted to mention was the uh, probably the first demo that we did was the uh, opening song Eating the Dead which is based around a recurring note and theme of D E A D and we played with semaphore as well I believe on that and I believe the tempo is also related to, to those um, notes in a kind of mathematical form. And um, I guess it was always, for me, it was like a, a broadcasting, a kind of a call to arms for Dead Club to begin to unite around the record. And it kind of, I think it served to do that. It kind of got us all um, focused on getting the album made. So making this uh, record has been, well, it's been like a real mixed bag of joy in the moment of writing and recording the tracks with the band, you know, seeing the songs evolve and improve with the hive mind, and then quieter, kind of profound moments when listening later in the, you know, in headphone moments really, where it feels like an important, maybe useful record, um, a set of songs that kind of are rather grown up advising us all to take responsibility for our life and ultimately for our death. Yet, even after all we talk about on the record, I find it still difficult to talk openly about my brushes with death. Talking openly feels like that permission still ought to be requested, like a breach of trust um, before, you know, needs to be sought before uh, full disclosure. His death is so often a public and a private event. I mean, my own big experience is so intertwined with being a dad. Um, for me, grief was postponed, it was a postponed experience, you know, and I often wonder whether the five years or so it took to truly acknowledge and begin grieving was, was right, was it wrong, or was it just you know, just so, it was whatever it was. It was delayed, but it was no less felt when it happened. Anyway, I felt that so often listening to this record, it permitted a little space for these feelings to return, to rearrange and to resettle in, in a good way. And I hope other people find that too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dead Club podcast. 
Still to come in the series are interviews with Kevin Young, AC Grayling, Catherine Mannix, Alain de Botton and Speech de Bell. And if you missed them, we spoke to Max Porter and Dame Sue Black in earlier episodes. Please do subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.